How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started and give them time to figure out what the sound problem is, we'll take a few moments of silent prayer, give you a chance to use 1 John 1, 9 if you need to, and then I will open in prayer. So, yeah, we're not getting any sound out of the speakers. Well, it doesn't sound like it does 100% of the rest of the time. There's nothing coming out. So we'll uh, have a word of silent prayer so they can hear what the problem is in the speakers while we're silent, while I'm silent, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you for the fact that your word sheds light upon our lives. It not only teaches us about our sinful fallen condition and your magnificent grace in providing us with a salvation that takes care of every sin and a wonderful Savior, but it also informs us of all that you have given us for our spiritual life. But beyond that, it gives us a framework of thought, a world view. You inform us as to information crucial for every arena of human thought so that as we approach your word, we can learn how to think about the, all of the details of life from a biblical framework, honoring you as the creator of all things. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we can understand these things and be challenged by them and respond to that challenge. Under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Genesis 11, 27. 27, and we're beginning the study of Abraham in detail. Now, at the beginning, Abraham goes by his birth name, which is Abram in English, Avram in Hebrew. I'll probably go back and forth, drive some of you nuts. Um, and most of the time, though, in the New Testament, Abraham is always referred to by his final name, which is Abraham. So probably most of the time, that's the name I will use, is Abraham, even though the text for the first several chapters has him as Avram. So this section begins in 1127 uh, down to 32, and I just want to read over this. This looks genealogical, but it really isn't. It's setting the stage. It's telling us who Abram was, what his background was, where he began, and it gives us more information than what you may think uh, initially. This is the genealogy of Terah. Literally, it's the Toledot of Terah. That is, the. this is what happened to the generations of Terah. Remember, Terah is in the line from Shem. Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And what we're told here is that in this pattern of writing the genealogies, just as uh, you have other genealogies that end with three names or three people, 
So you have uh, Noah gives birth to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here you have Terah giving birth to Avram, Nahor, and Haran. But this isn't their birth order. This is probably the order of their significance, or at least Avram is mentioned first because he is the most important and significant of the three sons. So Terah gives birth to Avram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran gives birth to Lot. And Lot, therefore, is the nephew of Aram, of Avram. Of, uh, Avram. Genesis 11:28. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And now we know where they lived. They're in a very famous city in the ancient world, a large cosmopolitan uh, town, city, in southern, what is now southern Iraq. Uh, <clears throat> very well-known city, very cosmopolitan town. And, it was, and of course, it's, we still have to figure out when they lived there. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, so he's not part of the picture. Then verse 29, then Avram and Nahor took wives. So apparently, um, Haran died young. Uh, Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So she is a niece. So Avram is going to marry a half-sister, and Nahor is going to marry his niece, Milcah, who is the sister of Lot, right? Got to keep it all in the family. Remember, incest is not condemned at this point in history. Why not? Because the core issue in, in incest is genetics and what the damage it does to the product of a sexual union between two people who are too closely related. But in the early history of the human race, this wasn't a problem. Adam was created with all of the genetic combinations and possibilities uh, for the entire human race. He gave birth to various sons and daughters, and they married each other. And they produced offspring, and you don't have problems. And this continued down through uh, generation after generation until you come to the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is the first place in the Bible where you have a prohibition against the marriage of those who are too closely related. And the reason is very practical. By that time, these um, uh, the genetic pool had become diluted enough to where it, be- it becomes a problem and would destroy the racial stock of the people. You'd start having deformed children, children with various health defects, mental defects, and other problems. So that's hard for us to understand because we live 4,000 years later when this has been uh, taboo for so long that we think of it as being in- something that's inherently wrong. But it wasn't inherently wrong or immoral Otherwise, it wouldn't have been going on for as long as it did. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, this is the movement of the passage. This is why it's important to think in terms of what is the author trying to communicate. We often focus on different doctrines that are evident or that are backdrops or that are uh, presupposed in the passage. But we have to look to see where the author is driving us. What is he the point that he is making. And the point is that you have all of these people getting married and having children, 
But the line stops with Sarai. She's barren. She had no child. It's the end of the line. And that sets the stage for the whole Abraham story because the focal point of the Abraham story is that God promises him a seed. He promises him descendants that will be as vast as the, as innumerable as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And this is going to be the source of the Savior. So this is the focal point. And there must be divine intervention before Sarai can have a child. And then we're told in verse 31, And Terah took his son of Ram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran, and they dwelt there. Verse 32, So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now let's get a little background. First of all, we have to remember what has just taken place in recent history. That's the Tower of Babel incident. Not only is that recent history, but that is the episode that takes place in the first part of chapter 11. And they're, they're there for, the, for the, an important reason, as I've pointed out before. The Tower of Babel reveals man's depravity, his rebellion against God, and the fact that he has united together and systematized his thought in terms of rebellion against God and establishing a culture, a city, a civilization that is going to write God out of its history, remove God from uh, the pages of its books, and is going to create its own religious system in its place. So we saw, we've seen in the last few weeks, point number one, just in terms of review, that Babel was the beginning of the development of what comes to be called in the New Testament the cosmic system. I spell cosmic with a K like the Greek word cosmos. Babel's the beginning of the development of the cosmic system, and it is used that way throughout Scripture. It becomes the picture of worldliness. Everything that is evil is attributed to this autonomous civilization that develops at Babel. And Babel and Babylon, which is its successor, Babylon is juxtaposed, is viewed as the city of man and the kingdom of man, and is juxtaposed to Jerusalem as the city of God. And that struggle doesn't finalize, it's not completed until the end of the book of Revelation, until the end of the tribulation. Now, point two, I pointed out that the cosmic system is characterized by three major attributes, and everything flows from that. So if you just think in terms of these attributes, you can develop out many ideas related to the cosmic system, and we'll do that over the course of time. First of all, arrogance. At the very core is this idea of human arrogance that man can assert himself over against God. This is a reflection of Satan's arrogance as exhibited in Isaiah chapter 14 where Isaiah uh, <clears throat> records the five I wills of Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, Satan expresses his ultimate desire which is to be like God. And this is recorded in Isaiah 14, uh, 13 and 14 where uh, Lucifer says, I will ascend into heaven... I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. 
I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. This is arrogance, the creature asserting himself over against the Creator, that the creature can be the ultimate reference point, that the creature can bring order and meaning to the creation without uh, the Creator. So that is arrogance. It is autonomy. It is man creating, the, or the creature creating his own law, his own set of standards. It's the creature saying that, that he can define society. It's the creature saying that he can define law and the nature of law. It's the creature saying that, that he is the one who ultimately is answerable to himself alone and can change uh, his view of reality based on his own ideas. It's this assertion of independence from God. The second attribute, second attribute that comes out of this is fear. Is fear. At the very core of the human soul, cosmic thinking, which is nothing more than the rational, rationalizations that justify the sin nature, the very core of the soul is fear. This is what happens when God comes and walks in the garden. It's just the very presence of God generated what? Fear in the heart of Adam and Eve. They ran and hid. God said, why are you, why are you hiding? He said, because we heard the sound of thee in the garden and we were afraid. See, this is what happens. When someone takes a stand for the truth, those who are in moral rebellion, those who are operating on the cosmic system, are afraid. And what goes along with that fear? What is the, what is its counterpart? It's anger and resentment toward God. And this leads to the third characteristic of the cosmic system, and that is antagonism toward God, animosity toward God, hatred towards all things that are biblical and all things that represent God, and anything that advocates biblical absolutes are the person of Jesus Christ. Now let me show you, give you a current real-time um, Example of this. I'm going to read some excerpts from an article that appeared in the Scotsman at uh, de, uh, the Scotsman.scotsman.com, dated Monday, the 6th of September, 2004. And the headline is California Dreaming of a Carry Victory by Fraser Nelson. Now, apparently, he is not an American, and he's here writing about the American political scene. And he writes, I'll just read the first two or three paragraphs to give you the thrust of the article, and then I'll quote. I'm not quoting this for its political benefits. I'm quoting, as you'll see, I'm quoting it to show you the thinking of the cosmic system in relationship to God. He writes, as soon as the traffic lights turn red on the long road into San Francisco from the airport, a platoon of beggars converges on drivers. Without any pretense about washing car windows, they had written out a novel pitch for cash. Hungry, homeless, bush out. Well, this is a fairly accurate welcome to the political climate of the city. I'd come to write a portrait of an America which was evenly and agonizingly split between George Bush and John Kerry, and I started in the wrong place. From homeless to hoi polloi, the city seems united in its loathing for the president. 
And then he talks about the first Californian he interviewed and his conversation with him. Now, I want you to get the thrust of this guy's thinking. Here's a, here is a businessman who apparently has more than one brain cell that connects, but not correctly. And this guy reached inside his shirt and produced a dog tag engraved with his choice, Kerry Edwards, 2004. Do you see this? I work with 200 men, and we're all wearing one. You know why? Because George Bush is the Antichrist. He's in cahoots with big business. He started a war on a damn lie, and we're going to crucify him. Of course, the question I always have for people like that is, okay, where would you, what would you be doing for income if it weren't for big business? Now, let's just think about this a minute. Or even small business. He works for Amtrak, which he believes Mr. Bush intends to privatize. So what's going on here? There's a level of fear generating in this guy's soul for his job, right? So he's blaming Bush. Okay. Then he says, I'm so fired up. I haven't felt this way for years. We're going to take our country back again. Now, his politics are really not relevant to what I'm going to point out here. The next paragraph, he says, um, we're going to take back our country again. It's, it's time for the people. Now, the writer writes, Mr. Schwartz, a trade union leader, has a clear idea of his enemy. Hicksville allied with Wall Street. Qu- quoting Mr. Schwartz. There are these, these, he struggles to find the word. Christians. Mad, mad Christians. And they vote for Bush because they're just like him. See, the ultimate problem isn't Bush. It's Christians. It's Christianity. He says, um, I mean, the writer goes on and he talks about this and, and all of the hostile and profane bumper stickers that he sees condemning the Republicans out in California. But as he moves down the article, he comes down, he says, um, he says, uh, as he's listening to the radio, he begins to listen to Christian radio. And uh, he says, I'd hit on the conservative wavelength, the kind of God FM. And he goes on, he talks about how on the Hour Family News Bulletin relayed dispatches about court rulings on gay marriage in various American states. San Francisco, according to one survey, had turned so gay that pet dogs now outnumber children. This was not a sect broadcasting from a beach house. The U.S. had some 1,600 Christian radio stations with, which claimed 90 million listeners. You know, he's writing this for a European audience. They just... You know, Europeans always comment. They come over here, they can't believe how religious Americans are. Even cab drivers will have a Bible sitting up in the cab on, on the seat in front of them. They never see, see a Bible in, in Europe. So he goes on and he talks like that, and he just points out how divided and how polarized America is. Now, on one side, there's the, there's the... All the different caps have labels, he says. Labels are put on each side. The metro like to sip cafe lattes, have gay friends, and are deeply suspicious of big companies and favor higher tax and oppose the Iraq war. This is, broadly speaking, the liberal camp, which most of Europe would fit into. The flip side are dubbed retro or conservatives. They emphasize family values, are suspicious of government meddling, are fiercely protective of their rights to bear arms, and are usually Christian. 
Now see, the undertone in this whole article, although I don't think that the, that the writer is exhibiting an anti-Christian attitude, but he is clearly describing the hostility that is out there toward Christianity today. And in some, many areas, and that's not to say that, that there aren't Bible-believing uh, liberals and Bible-believing Democrats, but he's pointing out that in many areas of this country, there are large segments of liberals who have a social agenda that is 180 degrees opposite the socially defined norms of the divine institutions given in Genesis 1 through 11 as we've studied them. They're against personal accountability and responsibility. They want government to take care of all the problems so that if something happens, government's always there with a the safety net. They're opposed to marriage as defined by the Bible being between a man and a woman and not gay marriage. Uh, that, of course, affects family. In turn, it affects, uh, they're, they're against capital punishment. They're against being harsh on criminals, many other things, and that all goes with a certain mindset. And so what happens now is this, as our country's divided, we become more and more polarized, that, that what surfaces is this, this longing, this tremendous desire on the part of these people to assert their autonomy, and they've created their own value system out there in San Francisco, They've created their own value system. They've created their, the way they want to do things, and they don't want anybody coming along and saying that's wrong. See, they miss the inconsistency here that what they're saying to Christians is that you're wrong. They claim Christians are judgmental. They're being just as judgmental. But what's causing this is that they've rejected God, they've, they've opposed God, and they are... Uh, as soon as anybody says, thou shalt not, they, this anger, this, I would almost call it a soul angst, it's buried in our sin nature, just erupts forth in the most vitriolic, bitter, hostile reaction. And we, I, in my lifetime, I've never seen, now there, there was a lot of reaction back during the late 60s and early 70s in relation to the, to the uh, uh, Vietnam War, and a lot of what we're seeing today is that mentality taken to its a, a further conclusion. But this is uh, much further along the road than it was 30 or 40 years ago. There is a hostility to Christianity. You can believe anything you want to, but don't believe the Bible and don't assert uh, Christianity. So we see that the cosmic system is alive and well, generating its own values and generating intense hatred and antagonism of all things Christian and uh, toward God. And so we have a president right now who uh, doesn't just have a superficial relationship with Christianity, but is trying to the best of his ability to apply a, and develop and apply a Christian and a biblical worldview. I'm, I don't know whether he's... How accurate he is, I don't know what the influences are on him. I know he goes to a Methodist church, and I don't have a lot of uh, uh, respect for a Methodist church being able to develop a sound biblical worldview. But that's the framework in which he's operating. That doesn't mean I agree with every decision or that he's God's man for the hour. We just don't want to identify that. But that's what his position is. 
And whenever anybody takes a stand, and he's certainly not cramming it down anybody's throat, and there are many ways in which I think he would take, I wish he would take a stronger stand from a biblical framework. But because he, to the degree that he is, as lightweight as it may be, in terms of applying a biblical worldview, it's generating incredible hostility. This election is the, going to be the vortex of the angelic conflict for a while. And so one of the things you need to make sure of is that you keep your focus. Don't get mad. Don't throw your shoes through your television screen. You know, learn to relax a little bit, claim promises. Um, it's in the Lord's hands. This is all part of the cosmic system. Now, point number three, the cosmic system really is an alternate religion. It develops an alternate religion because religion at its very core is the structure of whatever people worship, whatever they glorify, whatever they honor, whatever they put as the focus of ultimate reality. And we've done our study in Romans 1, where God says that ultimately, or Paul says that ultimately they, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And whatever that may be, whether it's abstract ideals of the mind, or whether it's a more overt idolatry, whether it's atheism, atheism is a religion. If you're an atheist, you're just as religious as any devout Islamic terrorist. It's just that you, your religion denies that there's a God. But the statement, there is no God, is just as religious as the statement, there is a God. And there is no such thing as spiritual or religious neutrality. So atheism is a religion. Secularism is a religion. Ritual mysticism is in the other extreme. You can have the deification of the state, the deification of the leader. This is the idea you had in ancient states like Egypt and Rome where the leader was deified. Philosophical systems are religious substitutes. You can say, well, I'm a pragmatist. I'm not, or I'm, a, I'm an evolutionist. I'm a materialist. I'm an existentialist. Those are religious statements just as much as uh, devout Christianity or, or any religious cult or mix. In fact, I understand that out in California now, you have Christians out there who are mixing Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and, and uh, you know, New Age stuff all blended together. You can just get any kind of mixed drink you want out there, but it's just as lethal. Religion is one of the worst evils in history, and in terms of our present civilization, religion got its start at the Tower of Babel because the Tower of Babel was a religious act, and the gods were housed in these ziggurats up in the roof. We have to remember that religion is not Christianity. Religion emphasizes man and his works, whereas Christianity is a relationship with God based on what Christ did, but based on the work of Christ. So religion and Christianity are opposed to each other. Religion is man's attempt to gain the approbation of God through his own works. Christianity is a relationship based on the completed, sufficient work of Christ on the cross. Religion is produced by the sin nature, it's human good. Religion can produce a lot of good things, but it has also produced a lot of evil. I just hate it when you hear people talk about the Crusades. See, Christianity produces a lot of evil. No, Christianity didn't produce that. Religion produced that. Christianity had nothing to do with 
the Crusades. Now, if you want to define it in terms of overt institutional Christianity has existed then, yes, but it's not really Christianity. It wasn't biblical Christianity. It was a mix of mysticism and paganism and uh, with a veneer of Christian verbiage, biblical verbiage, but it wasn't biblical. Now, the fourth point in terms of this introduction is that Avram was born and was reared in the midst of this toxic religious environment of southern lower Mesopotamia in Ur. And it was all around it. Yet nevertheless, there was still a remnant of understanding of who God was as El Elyon, the Most High God. There was still a knowledge of El Elyon, and apparently Abram, once he reached God consciousness, was positive and uh, worshipped El Elyon. His family was involved in a mix of religious worship. Joshua 24.2 tells us, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Even though they may have worshipped El Elyon, they also worshipped the other gods. So they do what a lot of people do today. They just try to assimilate God and Jesus and the Bible into their pagan framework, into their evolutionary, secular mindset, and feel very comfortable and very happy because they go to church on Sunday. Occasionally they may go to some other religious service, and they think that they are acting Christian. But it's not Christian because they have many other gods and Jesus is just one of them. But you can serve many gods. You can serve your career as a god. You can serve politics as a god. You can serve your lusts as a god. You can serve money as a god. Anything can become a god. Then Joshua 24.3, God went on to say, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac, a summary of the life of Abraham, and God's grace in Abraham's life. Now the final point is that even in this context, even in this context of tremendous idolatry, paganism, hostility toward God, God is still dealing with man on the basis of grace. God is not turning his back on man. And, and the interesting thing that, that uh, we will see is that Abraham is the tenth generation from Noah. Noah is the tenth generation from Adam. And that isn't coincidental. The writer is showing, and history showed, that by that tenth generation, the world was just as corrupt ten generations after Noah as it was ten generations after Adam. And in ten generations after Adam, the world was was so evil that God had to destroy it. Well, he wasn't going to destroy it this time, but he was going to deal with it in grace again, the same way he did before, on the basis of grace, and call out uh, Abram. So what was his world like? What was the world into which Avram was born? Avram, uh, 
Ben Terah, as he would be known uh, by his Hebrew name, Avram, the son of Terah. What was that world like? Well, let's just make some points. Before we can figure out what Avram's world was like, we've got to figure out when he lived. Now, that's not easy, but we've got to figure out some things about his his times. Before we talk about the life of Abraham, we have to figure out about the times of Abraham, the life and the times of Avram ben Terah. Well, first point, he was the tenth generation from Noah to Avram. So if we count, and that's including Noah. So if Noah's number one, Avram is number ten. In the same way, if you start counting with Adam, Noah was number ten. Now let's switch. I want to try to switch PowerPoints here. And go to our... No, that's not it. There we go. Uh, Let's switch back there. Here we have our chart showing the timelines and generations of uh, Noah. I just made a JPEG of this to be put out on the website. Okay, we've got Noah's the first one up there. Noah, Shem, or Paxad. Now, our Paxad is roughly the same generation as Nimrod. Now, if you notice, they're all still alive. They all live up to almost 2100. Uh, well, the timeline at the bottom. Let me go to the next one. There we go. These top line numbers in black indicate the number of years since creation. The numbers in the blue at the bottom indicate the years before Christ. So, down through the fourth generation from Noah, Eber, they all live lengthy lives, and they all live till almost 2100, or uh, what would be 2000 B.C. They lived almost 2000 B.C. Now, Abram, Avram, as we'll see, is born in 2166, now, when he's born, Noah is still alive. There's just a slight overlap. Uh, Shem is going to live well into uh, Avram's adulthood, as is Arpachshad, Shelah, and Abra. They're all alive. He, he knew uh, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. But many of his immediate uh Grandfathers, uh, Sarug and Reu and Peleg all died before he was, he was very old because the results of the flood were beginning to set in. So we just see this, put this chart up here to refresh your mind as to how he plugged into that descent, uh, from Shem and the, and the structure of the genealogy. Now the second point is that Avram was born 400 years after the flood. The flood took place in 2566 B.C. Now, I am, I am intentionally using conservative dates here. I am, we've gone through this in the past. That there's, I don't believe there's gaps in the genealogies. This presents uh, a difficulty for us. It does. Because archaeology comes along and, and archaeology says that you can trace back a civilization in Sumer that goes back to, which is where uh, Ur was located in Sumer, 
that that civilization goes back to about 6,000 or 7,000 B.C. Well, scratch your head on that one. Where do you get that? How can you squeeze that in? Even conservative biblical scholars will at least put the flood back to about 4,000 B.C., but they can't figure out exegetically how they're going to get the time. Trust me. I've talked, I've talked to them and said, where do you get it? Well, we can't. Archaeology tells us this. Well, maybe there's a problem with the dating mechanisms in archaeology. Maybe their presuppositions are front-loaded, and the tools that they use, the dating, scientific dating methods they use, just like in, in evolution, are tainted, and they don't really give accurate readings. And maybe their presupposition about the weather. So one of the one of the one of the ways in which they will date a tell is that they'll see different layers of, of uh, construction there. And you have a city, and then there's another city built on the ruins of the previous city. And they see this as taking you know, several hundred years, and then something happens, and that city's wiped out. But if we follow a creationist model of meteorology, what happens after the flood is you have these almost like, like uh, tidal, meteorological tidal waves that... Uh, ebb and flow down through the next three or four centuries. And this produces ice ages that follow one upon another very rapidly. Well, as the ice flows come down from the North Pole, that creates a very temperate climate around the equatorial regions. You can get up in a satellite and take uh, satellite pictures, and you can see the old riverbeds in the Sahara Desert. Obviously, there were some large rivers in the Sahara Desert at one time, but not to our knowledge, not in written history. So there obviously was a difference in the, in the climate of the time. Well, if the climate is, is an extremely wet climate and there are a lot of floods, I'm getting that weird buzz again that we had on Sunday morning, um, and you, get, you, you have these floods uh, coming rapidly every, every five or six years and wiping out these cities, and then they rebuild them every five or six years instead of every four or five hundred years, that's going to change how you date those tells. But there, just a, a lot of work needs to be done, and it's, it's very difficult, and there's very, very, very few, trust me, uh, people who are out there who want to start with an assumption that the biblical numbers are correct and that the earth is really a young earth and not an old earth. So we have... Uh, have here a situation where you only have 400 years between the end of the flood and Avram's birth. That means that these civilizations that allegedly uh, lasted for uh, several hundred or a thousand or fifteen hundred years were really compressed into only two or three hundred years. So the major players who were founding like the old kingdom in Egypt and Sargon I, who founded the uh, civilization of, of, of Sumer, these were probably uh, other names for people who are mentioned in the Bible, or maybe they're brothers that aren't brothers that aren't mentioned in the Bible. But they are great; these great, powerful men in that those first four or five generations off the ark that were out there building civilizations around the earth. So our second point of Ram was. 400 years after the flood. 
He's born in approximately 2166. Now, another note that we should take from our observation from what we just read in Genesis 11 is that Avram is 75 years old when he when Terah died in Haran. He's 75 years old, so that means that Terah had to have been 130 years old because Terah dies at 205. Just do the math. 205 minus 130, I mean minus 75 is 130. So Avram is clearly born late in life now. Think about this a minute. At 130 years of age, Abram's father gives birth to him. But when Abram is 80, he is incapable of procreation. See, this is showing the rapid deterioration of the human race from generation to generation. Now I'm going to see if I can... Go here and resurrect another another slide. Okay, here's a map. This map shows the movement of Abram when they left Ur. Here's Ur down here in the uh, lower Mesopotamian Valley at the uh, base of the Euphrates. Here's the Tigris over here. Down here's the Persian Gulf. We put in the modern names here for point of reference. Here's Kuwait. This area that we're talking about all through here is modern Iraq that we hear about on the news all the time. This area up here is Syria. This is where Haran is located off the uh, banks of the Euphrates up to the, in northern Syria. Now, on the banks of the Euphrates which is interesting because the Euphrates here becomes the boundary of the land that God promises to Abram. So he goes to the border of that land and stops for a while until Terah dies, and then he finally goes into the land. And all of this territory down to the south that is modern Syria and Lebanon is all part of that land that God's going to promise to the descendants of Abraham. They go down through Damascus and on down into, uh, into the land to Shechem. But this is the route of their travel. Now, this city right here, Mari, is a place where, where they discovered many documents and letters from a very famous archaeological site, and a civilization flourished there in the 1700s, 1800s B.C. So that gives us a great picture of what life was like around the time of Abraham. And it fits perfectly with the picture that we see in the Bible. So uh, they, they leave Ur, they head northwest to Haran, and they stay there until uh, Terah dies when he's 130 years old, and then uh, and dies when he's 205, and then he leaves. Okay, now we have to figure out when all this happened. When did this occur? Let me try to get back to our timeline. Okay. Here we go. Timeline of the patriarchs. Let's figure this out. 
Here's our first marker. Here's our timeline ending with the cross. And we'll put a line in there for 1000 B.C. Dating Abraham is pretty easy. It's amazing, though, how few people can accurately date Abraham. We have to back up, though, and go through a number of progressions to get to a date. When you read the literature, they'll, they'll date, date, some people try to date Abraham even down around 1500 B.C., which really compresses Old Testament history, uh, and there's just not enough time for everything to take place. So we're going to start here, and the first scripture that we want to look at is 1 Kings 6.1. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, so this is in the springtime, roughly equivalent to our late April or May, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. That's the temple. So this gives us a firm date that everybody can agree on, and that is that Solomon started constructing the temple in 966 B.C. 966 B.C. So we'll put a marker in right there. The temple starts to get built in 966 B.C. This is when you, you, your countdown begins. He says that in 1 Kings 6, 1, that it was exactly 480 years since they came out of Egypt, since... Uh, the Exodus occurred. So if we simply add 480 to 966, we come to 1446 B.C. as the date of Exodus. Now, maybe sometime you read somebody and they said 1441, 1445. Over the period of the last 50 or 60 years, we've really been able to refine our dating systems. And there was a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. It's been out of print for 40 years. It was uh, fantastic work done by a man named Edwin Teeley that works through all of these chronological issues and is really a, a benchmark study. And a lot of systems had to be adjusted a year or two as he clarified things. So 1446 B.C. is the date of the Exodus. Now, that's a solid date. We know that. We know that the temple was dedicated in 966 B.C. We know it happened uh, four years after... Solomon began to reign. So we can, we can date that with certainty. Now, when we get into secular history, you can't date anything in secular history with certainty. You don't have an inspired revelation. You don't have God giving you the benchmark dates. Now, liberal theology comes along, and they don't accept that number. They say, well, at 480, that's not really literal. Let's just take that as a representative number. It represents... Um, 40 generations, and um, uh, or 12 generations, whatever it is, and, and we'll just uh, crunch that number down to about 200. So they come up with a date of 1260. They stick the Exodus in the middle of the 13th century, and then they look around for a pharaoh and say, well, the pharaoh of the Exodus had to have been on the throne for a long time. Somebody in there had to be on the throne a long time because uh, Moses was out of, out of the country for a while in Midian. So they end up posing Ramesses II as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. That's why when you watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know, you've got Ramses in there, Nefertiri. Well, 
That's pure liberalism. That's liberal, the liberal reconstruction of history. So there's your first problem with that movie. Uh, you know, it's always fun is to, have, to do a study of Exodus and then have people sit down for a final exam, watch the Ten Commandments, and point out how many biblical errors there are. That gets people to think critically about what's, what they watch. Now, another passage that confirms this is in Judges. I'll just give you the reference. Judges 11, 15 through 27. Jephthah is in conflict with the Ammonites who are oppressing Israel during that cycle. Remember, Jephthah is the brigand. He's the son of a prostitute. And he's the one who makes a vow that if God will give him victory over the Ammonites, then he will offer his daughter as a sacrifice. Or literally what he says is, I will offer as a burnt offering whatever comes out of the, the house to greet me when I come home comes home and his daughter comes running out, and so he has to uh, offer her as, an, as a human sacrifice and a burnt offering, which he does. But it's a reflection of how even the leaders of Israel have just been so influenced by paganism during that time that, that he does, even after God's commissioned him to and promised him to give him victory, he still makes this pagan bargain with God, thinking that somehow that will uh, gain God's uh, Grace, But in the process of all of this, he contends with the Ammonites and argues that Israel has had possession of the, of the Transjordan area. That's the area east of the Jordan. That they've had possession of the Transjordan for 300 years. Well, almost every scholar, liberal, conservative, everybody would agree that it was sometime around 1100 B.C. when Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. Well, if that was in 1100 and you had 300 to it, that's 1400. And, he's, and so that would mean the conquest took place about 1400 B.C. Well, if the exodus takes place in 1446 B.C., they spend a year on Sinai, that's 1445, then 40 years in the wilderness, that's 1405. It's pretty close. So that's another confirmation in the text that we're dealing with a period in the mid-15th century. Furthermore, God said to Abram as a prophecy in Genesis 15:13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. On top of that, Moses... Well, I don't have it up there. I don't have a slide on that verse. Moses, in Exodus 12, 40 to 41, says that it was 430 years between the time of uh, that Jacob entered Egypt and the land. So, you've got this, um, let me see here, you've got 480 years to the, to the Exodus... And then 430 years, God told Abraham it would be about 400 years. Moses nailed it at 430 years. And that puts the birth of uh, Jacob about 1876. Now, this dates another thing that's contested. Uh, Liberals come along and say, well, it was really only 215 years. And they based that on uh, a verse in the New Testament. In Galatians 3.15, it sounds like there's only 430 years from Abraham to the Exodus. So you might want to just look at that verse. Galatians 3.15. 
Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Okay, verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, later than what? Verse 16. Notice what verse 16 says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Okay, God made the same promise about the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the last time that God reiterates the promise to Jacob is in Genesis chapter 20, or, yeah, about Genesis 45, excuse me, Genesis, uh, about Genesis chapter 45, and it's just before they leave Canaan to go down into Egypt. So if you date it from that last promise to the law, it's 430 years as stated in Genesis, in, in uh, Galatians 3.15. Another evidence that you've got to have at least 400 years is if you just add up the key people. Now, follow this. Levi was 44 years old when he goes into the land. And he... He entered Egypt, that is, not when he entered the land, but he's 44 years old when he enters Egypt. And he was 137 when he died, and that means he has 93 years in Egypt. His son Kohath lived for 133 years. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of overlap, but not a lot. I mean, you know, 20 20 years to 30 years. Okay, Amram lives to be 137. And Moses leaves the land when he's 80. Now, if you add all these numbers up, you come up with the number 443. Now, obviously, there's some overlap. So even if you take 100 years out for overlap, you still have to have a minimum of 350 years between the time Jacob goes into the land and the giving of the law. So this doesn't support a short time in Egypt, but a long time in Egypt. They're in Egypt, 430 years according to the text. Well, that means that, that if the Exodus was in 1446 B.C. and you add 430 years to that, then Jacob, with about 70 with him, his sons and their wives and their servants, and others entered into Egypt in 1876 B.C. And we know that Isaac was born in 2066. Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born. And so that means that he was born in 2066 according to Genesis 25.6. Jacob was 130 years old when he entered into the land. So if you add 130 years, and then you add another 60, you end up with Isaac's birth at 2066 B.C. So you take uh, 1876 when Jacob entered Egypt, add 130, because that's how old he was, that gets you Jacob's birth in 2006. Since Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born, you add 60 to 2006 and you have 2066. That's the computation. Since Abram was 100 years old when Isaac was born, then that means Abram's born in 2166 B.C. I think that's a pretty firm date. 
I've been doing a lot of study, a lot of work on this the last few weeks, and just trying to nail down some some firm conclusions about the background about Abram. What's going on with, with Abram, and what was going on in his world when he was born? And I've read in some some historical works that he's raised up in the third dynasty of Ur. Others say, no, the third dynasty of Ur didn't come in until 2100 when he was 66 years old. He was already out of the land. He was up in Haran. That Abram really grew up under a period when these barbarians from the east called the Gudeans, who were, who were uh, Semites, came in and, and dominated Ur for about a hundred years. You can't be sure. Our knowledge of ancient history and the dates just is just too fluid and too influenced by a lot of other factors. What we can say for sure, I think, is when these biblical dates are. We can't always be sure what was going on around them. And the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time uh, telling us about it. It tells us that they were moon worshipers, and that was the central god in Ur was... Uh, the Akkadian name was Seen, and he was the that was the moon god. And there was a cult of Seen that was also started, a, sort of an offshoot up in Haran, and that was very dominant. So they were surrounded by idolatry. Now let's go back and look at our passage. We know that it's in Ur. They're surrounded by idolatry. Uh, there's the worship of the moon, worship of the stars, development of astrology, All of this is going on, but the point of this introduction, the point of this introduction is that the line has a dead end. It ends with Sarai, and her name means princess. Avram means um, exalted father. Not that he was the, it's not referring to him, it's it's referring to Avram's father, Terah. And so this tells us that Terah was part of the nobility at the time, in Ur the Chaldees. Now it's interesting, I don't know how much stock to put in it because much of the legend gets extremely fantastic. You know, if people want to understand why the Bible is unique, just read the, I've got a a multi-volume set at home by uh, Lewis Ginsburg called The Legends of the Jews. You just read that and compare that to the Bible and it's just, it's just incredible the stuff that's in there. It's like reading fairy tales. The Jews produced other literature other than what's in the Bible. And it's it just you read it and you compare it and, and the, the contrast is incredible. But according to the legends of the Jews, Nimrod is the ruler in this area at the time of Abram's birth. And so there is all of this hostility towards God and all this rebellion going on. And <clears throat> Avram is... Um, uh, our, our Terah was part of the nobility. He was part of the aristocracy under Nimrod. Nimrod would have still been very, very much alive. But it is clear just from the name of Abram and from what we see of them, the wealth that Abram had was incredible. So they would have been uh, aristocracy. They would have been a part of the nobility at that time. And Sarai means princess. So she obviously uh, has a name that indicates her nobility. But she is barren. And there is a doctrine in Scripture, the doctrine of the barren woman. And there are only a few women mentioned who are barren. It's not just because they just can't have children, but God is doing something. So we just have a couple of points on this, about six points on the doctrine of the barren woman.
Point number one, the significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of the woman. It's not that she has committed some act and so she can't get pregnant and God's punishing her. But the barren women in Scripture that are mentioned, are their barrenness is related to something significant that God is going to do in their life. Now, there were certainly many other barren women in Scripture than are, are, are during scriptural times than these women. But these are the only ones that are mentioned because the fact that they are barren is significant. Point number two, let's list them. Sarah and Genesis 11.30, our passage. Rebecca, who will be the wife of Isaac in Genesis 25.21. Rachel, who will be the wife of Jacob in Genesis 29.31. The mother of Samson in Judges 13. Hannah, the mother of uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel 1. And then Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. So we have uh, six. The seventh woman whose womb gets introduced into Scripture is Mary. And see, the, the empty dead womb of the barren women is all a type of the fact that, that God will bring a special life into the womb of Mary. Because with these barren women, their wombs are incapable of producing a child and of even carrying a child in the case of Sarah. It's just not physically possible. God is going to perform a miracle and bring life where there is death. So that leads us to point three, that there was a spiritual significance to this, that the absence of barren women was to indicate Israel's spirituality and God's blessing on them. The presence of barren women was to indicate that God was judging the nation. Exodus 23:26 says states that there will be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. If they obey the law... There wouldn't be any miscarriages, and there wouldn't be any um, any barren women. So it was a sign. God was going to sovereignly control this situation depending on the spiritual status of the nation. Thus, point number four, the barren womb in these pictures portrays the emptiness and the lifelessness of spiritually dead mankind. The barren womb is a picture of man in spiritual death. Point number five, and in each of these cases, God miraculously brings forth life where there is death. It's a picture of regeneration. Only God can solve the problem of spiritual death. Only God can solve the problem of spiritual death. And then the sixth point, ultimately, this is a picture of the virgin womb of Mary, that there a unique life would begin in the womb of Mary who would solve the problem of everyone's spiritual death and he would bring life where there is death and he would be the source of regeneration. So this is what's going on here at the beginning. You have an introduction to Avram and his family and the family has a problem and that is that it's at a terminal point. But God is working. God has already called them out, and we will begin to look at the call of Avram next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this evening, to study it, 
to understand this important doctrine of regeneration and how it's been portrayed from the Old Testament on and how you are the God who brings forth life where there is death. Father, we thank you for the life that you brought forth in our lives where there was spiritual death. And we pray that we might continue to expand that life as we grow spiritually and develop our own, our very own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.